This is episode number 56 with Adam Braun. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, a former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. What is up, greats? Thanks so much for checking out this episode today. I've got a very special guest and a good friend of mine. His name is Mr. Adam Braun, and he is an incredible human being. Adam has an amazing story and journey to tell, and I'm very excited for him to share with you what he's been creating over the last five years with his organization, Pencils of Promise. And it all started with a dream and $25. And with that $25, He built his first school, and now his organization has built over 200 schools around the world. And it's incredible to hear how he's done it and what he grew up with to understand the process of actually coming together and creating all of this for himself now. And his new book is called The Promise of a Pencil, How an Ordinary Person Can Create Extraordinary Change. And I really like this topic, and I love the book. The book is incredible. Amazing storyteller. And what I love about Adam is that when you meet the guy, he's got a heart of gold, but you might just say like, he's just an ordinary guy. He's just a, you know, a regular person, regular human being with a big heart, nothing fancy about him. He's not this super intelligent, like genius. He's not this freak athlete. He doesn't have these special talents or skills that are so incredible that, you know, you can't even fathom them. He has got an amazing heart. And with his heart, he's created extraordinary change. And it's pretty cool to to just witness what he's been able to create by building an amazing team around this idea of education around the world and what he's been able to put together. So I'm very excited for him to jump on here and share his story about how he got started with just an idea in his early 20s and how it's become this huge organization over the last few years and really the growth it's taking now and the process and the steps along the way on getting there. So if you've got a big idea or even a small idea that you want to make big and you've got a company or you've got something that you want to take to the next level and you don't think that you're the person to make it happen, maybe you don't think you're talented enough or have what it takes, hopefully you gain something from this interview and really see that you can create anything you want whatever it is you're passionate about and whatever it is going to make you most fulfilled uh, if you really believe in it and take the action necessary to make it happen. And there's a lot of uh, stories and mistakes and, and falls along the way that Adam has had and continues to have, but it's all part of the, the bigger story and the journey. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed interviewing Adam here on the school of greatness. So let's go ahead and dive in with Mr. Adam Brown. Remember the Thai cave rescue? What about the mission depicted in Black Hawk Down or the epic rescue shown in Captain Phillips? You've probably heard of all of these, but did you know that the U.S. Air Force Special Warfare played a pivotal role in all of them? These airmen are the most highly trained warriors on the planet. Other forces like the SEALs and Army Rangers call on them to provide skills no one else can. Not many people make the cut. If you think you can, visit AirForce.com to learn more. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Okay, quick math. 
the less your business depends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep, obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash greatness. netsuite.com slash greatness. Again, head to netsuite.com slash greatness. And what is up, everyone? Thanks again for sticking on for the School of Greatness. We've got a special guest and a great friend on today. His name's Adam Braun. What's up, Adam? How's it going? I'm doing great, and I'm super excited to have you on because of a couple of reasons. One, we became friends a couple of years ago. Actually, I kind of like stalked you in person and said, hey, <laughs> hey, I want to get involved in what you're doing. And you probably thought I was full of BS and just like everyone else. Uh, in, in the last couple of years, we've really built a great connection, um, working together, building schools for your, for your organization, Pencils of Promise and, yep. and Adam's organization. You know, I used to call it a nonprofit, but I guess it's really a four purpose is how you call it, right? Correct. Yeah. Which I think it's pretty cool. It's not the norm. And, mm -hmm. uh, you've built over 150 schools. Is that right? Or is there more now? Yeah. Now we, we recently just inaugurated the 200th school. Oh my gosh. Um, so it's, it's a, a huge, huge way from where I started, you know, a little bit more than five years ago, which is 25 bucks trying to build one school. But, you know, it's, it's a testament to good people, yourself included. So we're, we're excited about it and obviously big things um, to come as well. Yeah, two, 200 schools in since what year? Has it been like five years now? Yeah, it's been about a little bit more than five years since I started the organization. But we actually didn't even open our, our first school until... Uh, the end of 2009. So it's really wow. been more like four years that we've built the 200. Wow, it's amazing. And you're building it all over the world in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Yeah. And uh, is your plans to continue growing to other countries? Uh, eventually. I mean, right now we, we decided that we're going to go really deep in our existing countries. Mm. So we're going to focus on one country per region, uh, Guatemala in Latin America, Ghana in Africa, Laos in Southeast Asia. Um, but after 2015... Uh, we're going to look to expand to new countries. Nice, nice. Now, I want to talk about your story and your journey and your book, which is called The Promise of a Pencil, How an Ordinary Person Can Create Extraordinary Change. And, um, you know, I wasn't too sure what I was going to think about this book. And then I started reading it. And it reminds me a lot of The Alchemist, believe it or not. I don't know if you read that book, but uh, I, I'm, and that's literally the highest praise that you could give me. That's one of my three <laughs> favorite books. It's one of the first books that I recommend to people, and I probably sent it as a gift to <laughs> ten different people. It literally, once I read the first couple of chapters, I was like, "This is modern day alchemist." And, uh, <laughs> very cool. What you're what you're up to? So there's there's a couple things I want to dive into. You've got an interesting story. And uh, you were raised in Greenwich, Connecticut, correct? Yep. Which is one of the richest areas in the country. And um, there was an experience when you were in, I believe it was high school, um, where your family brought in a couple of new people to, to the clan. Can you yeah. talk about that? Yeah, sure. So uh, I was born in New York, but, but raised in Greenwich. My parents basically were living in the city, and uh, I guess they put together like a a little rubric and said, all right, what are the things that are most important to us? And, you know, where do we want to raise our kids? And the number one priority for them was education, in particular public education, because they didn't have the money to send their kids to private schools. So um, <clears throat> Greenwich had the best public education system. So that's where they moved us when I was about um, four years old. And so, yeah, I mean, I grew up in a really affluent community. And, um, you know, one of the things that a lot of people I don't, I don't think realize is actually how diverse Greenwich is as a town. 
you know, the stuff that gets portrayed in the media are, are the massive mansions in backcountry and, you know, the homes of hedge fund managers and CEOs, but it's actually about 80,000 people live there. So you have a lot of service industry people. There's actually three projects in Greenwich. Mm. Um, and really? so, yeah, yeah. And so there's a lot of diversity, but you certainly see the top of the top. And um, so I was exposed to that because I played every sport possible as a kid, but basketball in particular. And right. so, you know, my teams would be consisting of kids that lived in projects and kids that lived in, you know, 20,000 square foot mansions. Mm. Um, and so you saw the diversity and, and my dad um, was an immigrant and, uh, you know, just kind of instilled us in, in us a sense of values um, and just not to take anything for granted. And, you know, it's, I talk about it in the book, but. Um, he was the intimidating dad because okay. he wasn't afraid to call kids, you know, out on their um, spoiled nature, just like screaming at us when we're 10, like, stop being such, you know, effing pussies and <laughs> just getting in our face. He was, he was the intimidating dad. Yeah. Um, but when I was in high school, um, I was playing really competitive AU basketball. And um, one weekend, uh, you know, we'd had tons of kids crash at our house to, to head to weekend tournaments on a Friday night. And these two boys stayed with us over the course of a weekend and um, just got to know them really well. And it turns out they were from Mozambique. Originally, um, both came from absolute, absolute um, poverty. But they weren't brothers. They were childhood friends who were um, playing on the Pan-African uh, games on the, on the Mozambique national team. Uh, when they were 14 and 16, uh, an American coach saw them play, promised them a great American education if they could scrape together pretty much all the money that their families had. And they came over and it was, it was a farce. It was one room in the back of a rundown church in South Philly. A woman came in, passed out books, and left for the day. Wow. And it was really a front for a basketball team where the coach would essentially get paid by Nike or Adidas or whatever. Um, shoe company would guide these star players to the college that was sponsoring them. And then eventually, uh, hopefully, if they got into the NBA, they would like sign a contract with them. And there's been books written about this. And it's kind of the, the, the dark undercurrent of the AU um, mm -hmm. system. But, um, you know, the, these two boys were in that situation and, you know, living in a really dangerous environment, getting no education. And long story short, they asked us to take us in after they saw our public high school because um, that was kind of their American dream. And it really resonated with my parents and, and our family and uh, kind of came down to a personal choice where my parents asked me, you know, you're going to have to chaperone them and tutor them and assimilate them into this community um, and they're going to become a part of our family and it was a no-brainer. They were just incredible kids and so uh, when I was about 17 years old, we added two boys to my family who were originally from Mozambique. Not only did it change the dynamic of our family, but it entirely changed my personal worldview because I started to realize um, the path that they had taken was the path that you know people have taken over generations that wanted to strive for a life um, that was more than the one that they were born into, mm. and so um, you know it, it also just opened my eyes up to how many cultures and people exist outside of that small bubble that I had experienced up right. until that point. You know, growing up in Fairfield County, Connecticut, really only seeing New England, right. um, and so th that was kind of the the first step, I would say, in, in what led to this aspiration to live a very different uh, life from what was the norm. Right. Yeah. It's interesting because I, I grew up with seven different exchange students from all over the world from wow. ages, ages five to 14. And um, it was, for me, an amazing experience. Again, growing up in a, a small town of Delaware, Ohio, with like 30,000 uh. people, you know, mostly white suburban area. And uh, getting to experience other countries without actually having to travel, you know, with their language, their yeah. culture, their foods, they cook for us and all these things was just an amazing experience. So I can kind of relate to that. Mm. Um, and then, you know, reading in your book, and we've talked about this, but you, you really said when you were in like in middle school and high school, you wanted to be a billionaire, you wanted to be rich, you wanted to yeah. have mansions and the yachts and the girls and all that stuff. That was kind of the dream. Right. Um, and you went to you were on track to I guess achieving that. You went to Brown to play Division One basketball, but then something happened where you actually went to semester at sea. Isn't that correct? Yeah, yeah. I was um, sophomore in college playing you know college basketball and studying economics and sociology and, and a third major around entrepreneurship. And um, I just uh, saw this film called Baraka one night that was kind of like Planet Earth before Planet Earth. You know, the first exposure right. to just how how beautiful film could be, but it showed cultures rather than, um, you know, animals or something like that. And, and I was just blown away. And I thought if these are actual scenes that are happening somewhere in the world right now, if this isn't scripted, 
um, I need to go see this with my own eyes. Um, you know, I, I talk about this in the book, but you know, sometimes you just have this inner voice um, that compels you uh, and almost kind of it, it's your future self speaking to your present self saying, like, follow me. Mm. Uh, this is who and what you are meant to be. And, and I just couldn't turn away from that voice. And um, saw a scene in the movie in particular that really moved me that was shot in Varanasi, India. And a friend of mine had just gotten back from semester at sea and was just raving about how much it had changed her life. And I looked at the itinerary and they were going to India and I thought, this is it. I'm going to go to India, um, go to Varanasi and um, also get to, um, you know, see all these other incredible places around the world. And uh, while on semester at sea, uh, two really pivotal things happened. One, uh, my ship was hit by a 60 foot rogue wave about eight, 900 miles from land. And uh, it's the only time it's happened in the history of the voyage, but we had, you know, what, what can only be uh, described as a certain death experience. And so I kind of saw my life coming to an end and then, um, you know, fortunately survived through it. And so I had a, a series of very powerful realizations and, you know, again, just kind of changed my outlook pretty profoundly because of that. And then the second thing was I had a habit of asking one kid per country, what do you want most in the world? And asking them to write it down on a piece of paper because... On semester at sea, everyone does like one thing per country. You know, they collect a beer bottle or like a funny hat or they get a T-shirt or they take a photo of like a beanie baby in front of a landmark. <laughs> and my thing was I'm going to um, have kids from each country write down their interests, what, what they would want if they could have anything in the world. And, and I expected to get the answers that I wanted um, when I was a kid, which was like a big house, a fancy car, you know, the latest technology. And the answers were just so different. Um, and the most powerful one was, was finding this boy who was begging on the streets in, in India, in northern India. And um, I just thought, what, what would this kid want if he could have anything in the world? And so I asked him, and his answer was a pencil. And it just blew me away. And, um, you know, I kind of started to ask why. And I, re re I ended up learning that he had never been to school before. Uh, and that that was the reality for many, many children around the world. Right now, the number is 57 million. Uh, but there's another 250 million children who um, attend school but are unable to, you know, read and write their own name uh, by the mm -hmm. end of fourth grade. And so this this idea that children around the world lacked access to quality education, which was the one thing that um, had lifted my family out of poverty over several generations, it just really struck me. And so I gave him my pencil. He lit up, and I became obsessed with backpacking and wow. being in the developing world. And you know, I had always been entrepreneurial. I'd start little businesses or, you know, work side jobs, take my money, get a one-way ticket to some foreign country, and I'd backpack for several months with not much more than, uh, you know, maybe a week, week and a half's worth of clothing and a journal and a, uh, an iPod to listen to music and, like, a fistful of pencils. Wow. And I would just make my way into communities, live with those communities, and, and learn from them. Now, that's incredible. Now, what was one of the uh, – you said you had a couple realizations – from the seat, the near-death experience, what was, yeah. the, what was the first one or the most profound one? You know, the most profound one was um, when you face the end. You know, I, I don't want to say that your life flashes in front of your eyes. It's not like, you know, I suddenly had scenes of pivotal moments throughout my life happen. But there was this sense of weight, a sense of gravity to why I uh, existed and what had happened up until that point. And you certainly, I mean, I, I can only speak for myself, so I'll, I'll say I, but, you know, I, I immediately started to pray um, and kind of asked this question of, like, why am I here and, and why is this happening and why would my life have even been here in the first place if this is meant mm -hmm. to um, be the way in which I'm going to perish? You know, a 21-year-old man um, lost at sea. And uh, I had this incredible feeling come over me. Uh, of stillness and calmness, and it was uh, recognition. It was like suddenly I had knowledge that I did not have before, and it was that I was here for a purpose, and that purpose was not to perish at sea. Uh, I just could not both rationally and emotionally justify the positions that my life had put me in, um, that they would add up to me disappearing that day. Mm. And I, I suddenly knew that I had more. Uh, to do, I had more to to um, see. I had more to become, and I didn't know what what I, you know that purpose was. But the big recognition that I had coming out of that wave experience was that I was here for a purpose. Uh, it wasn't a random act that I existed. And um, from that point forward, most of my focus, uh, especially in the months right afterwards, was uh, around trying to figure out what is my purpose, and and that's really what guides me um, and the work that I 
have done ever since. Mm. Now, did you continue? Did the semester at sea continue after this this day? Yeah. Or? So you yeah, yeah. Another three months or something, or how did that? Yeah, work? yeah, about that. Um, so we, we unfortunately we missed the first two stops because they kind of did, had to dock the ship and the nearest land, which is Hawaii. Definitely not a bad place to be, you know, <laughs> technically shipwrecked. But they they ended up miraculously um, keeping the semester going. They, um, you know, we missed Korea and, and uh, Japan, but uh, we ended up uh, going to China, Hong Kong, Vietnam. India, um, Kenya, South Africa, Brazil, and Venezuela. So a real testament to Semester at Sea. I mean, it's an incredible program. I couldn't um, speak about something more highly than, than I uh, would about Semester at Sea. And so we ended up um, traveling to eight more countries. Wow. And how many, um, how many people removed themselves uh, from the semester? <laughs> I think there was about 20 maybe out of 700 plus. Wow. Um, so most of those were actually the elderly passengers. You, uh-huh. you have about, uh, I think, 40 or 50 People that are in their 60s, 70s, even 80s that um, uh, attend just to see the world and get exposure to college students, they kind of like mentor you. You know, they have this wisdom. Right. Um, they, on my trip, they call themselves the ancient mariners. And, um, you know, a couple of them said, all right, I'm going to get off here. And then a handful of students. But, you know, I, w- I will say in, in an environment like that, you can either see people um, kind of almost like going into mutiny or you can see them banding together. Um, and right. what I found is that people um, come together uh, in, in the greatest moments of adversity. Uh, that's when people feel most strongly connected. You know, like if you think back to 9-11, I've never felt more patriotic in my life. I've never wanted to have a flag in front of my home. I've never wanted to, you know, hug somebody more than when it felt like I was under attack and the people that I cared about were under attack as well. And so that, that's kind of what I, uh, you saw happen on that ship. I mean, Literally within a few hours, um, you know, even though everyone was in a bit of shock about what happened with this wave and all, um, you know, students were just on their own fixing the ship, you know, picking up broken glass, putting books back uh, in the shelves of the library. And so uh, we kind of had this invincible feeling like, all right, if we survive this, we can go through anything. And I've definitely had certain people that spend time with me. And it's, you know, like the first time I met them and we go on a two hour car ride at the end, they'll ask me outright. Um, have you been through a certain death experience? And, you know, it's happened now enough times for me not to be surprised by it. But when I, I, when I ask why, their reaction is always the same. They, they say, like, look, you, you speak about things with a lack of fear because it seems like you're not concerned with the same things that most people are who view their mortality as kind of imminent. Mm. Um, and strangely, I, I almost am so familiar with the potential imminence of, you know, your, my own mortality that it, it kind of forces me to embrace every single day, every moment, as cliche as that might sound, it's true. Uh, I, I really, I mean, have a, an immense sense of gratitude for every day because there was one point where I wasn't sure that I would get tomorrow. Mm. One of my favorite parts about my job is that I get the opportunity to travel a lot. And in fact, I'm recording this right now while I'm in Mexico. And actually, I was thinking about something that I wanted to share because I get a lot of questions from so many people about different side hustle ideas. So here's one for those of you out there that are on the go a lot like I am or traveling a lot. When you're staying in your Airbnb on your trips, have you ever thought about how you could be making extra money by hosting through Airbnb while your home is vacant? If you're interested in an extra stream of income, Airbnb hosting is an easy place to start and it's like giving your home some company while you're away. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When you get a new car or a new home, your first reaction might be to say things like, oh yeah, or I can't believe it, or booyah. But what you really want to say is the one thing that can get you the help you need. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm is there with the coverage you need for your car, your home, and even boats, motorcycles, RVs, and other things that matter to you. With a State Farm agent, you know someone is there to help you choose the coverage you need. With so many coverage options, it feels good knowing you can find what fits for you. And when you need ways to get help, State Farm gives you options there too, in person or on the phone with your local agent or on statefarm.com where their award-winning app State Farm lets you do things your way. So when you need help protecting the things that matter most, remember to say, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. When you want the best, you have to act 
quickly or someone else will get it instead. Like when you're trying to buy tickets for the best seat at your favorite team's big game or when you're hiring for your business and you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. With ZipRecruiter, you can find qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com greatness. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I believe finding the right team member is one of the most important steps in setting up my company for success. We like to ensure our new hires will be a good fit before they're even on the team. So I am grateful that I have ZipRecruiter's help when we want to grow the team fast. Amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash greatness. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash greatness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I love that approach, and I, I like to take that myself. Every every moment I'm with someone, every opportunity, I'm just like, tomorrow's never guaranteed. What if, if, yeah. I, if I don't wake up tomorrow, did I give my all today? Did I give my best? Did I love the most? Was, mm-hmm. I, was I honest? Was I true? And, uh, you know, would I be proud of myself? So I think that's amazing what, you're, what you've been up to. And um, so after this experience, you then come back and you start working, though, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I had angled myself and my career towards, you know, making a lot of money in finance. And uh, as much as I loved backpacking and, you know, traveled through like 20, 30, 40 countries in, um, in that period of time in semester team, this subsequent couple of years, um, you know, I got some very sound advice from people that said, like, look, Adam, I know you want to live in this one rural village in Thailand or Cambodia or wherever else and just build one school and be there forever. But you have the potential given your you know, kind of trajectory thus far to work at the really, really high levels of business. And, you know, each of them kind of advised me, pursue that path and then use those learnings and that, that knowledge and potentially that network and resources to have an even bigger impact on the world. Mm. And so um, I came back, went through consulting and investment banking interviews, uh, had some, you know, really amazing offers at really amazing companies. And my kind of dream job was to work um, at Bain, um, one of the top consulting firms, because they're known for having the number one training program for post-college students um, who then go on and start their own businesses. And so um, fortunately landed a, an offer there in the New York office. And so I went to work at Bain and company on the consulting side um, and just went through this incredible, incredible training, worked with absolutely brilliant people, saw the inner workings of Fortune 500 companies. Um, had exposure to how the best uh, businesses in the world were run and even improved upon. And uh, I realized about a year, year and a half in, two things. The, the first was that um, the nonprofits I was passionate about weren't run with any of the business acumen mm. that I was used to seeing. And, you know, I started working at hedge funds when I was 16. And so my, the language that I spoke, the, the sense of what that I had around business, it, it was kind of weird and, and frustrating to me that these humanitarian issues weren't being approached with the same commitment to results. Mm. You know, like in the nonprofit space, it's okay to just make people feel good. You know, somebody gives you 50 bucks and like that's the end of the relationship because now I feel good because I gave you 50 bucks. And it's almost assumed that whatever you do with the 50 bucks is good. Um, but when you're actually inside of the organizations, they're incredibly inefficient. Mm. Um, and it's because they're usually based on passion. They're not based on a commitment to results. Right. And so that was one thing that I realized. The second was that in a year and a half of living in New York as a you know young 20-something-year-old single male, um, I was living what I thought was this great life. I had like this sick apartment and access to awesome parties and you know dating different girls and you know had great friends around. But uh, I wasn't connected to anything that wasn't in service of myself. Uh, mm-hmm. And after about a year and a half, I, I started to feel pretty empty about it. And um, realize that Bain lets you take what they call an externship. You can leave for six to nine months, work for anyone else, and come back. And I decided um, that I was going to use that time uh, exclusively for service to others. Um, and and uh, thought I would volunteer for an organization in Cambodia. And then um, I went to the New York Philharmonic one night. I'd never been to a symphony. And just uh, this guy walked out on the stage to play a, a piano concerto and he, I just watched him crushing these keys and he was just exuding so much passion. 
um, into this instrument and like, you know, what, however many hundreds of people are in the room, you're just mesmerized by it. Right. And I remember looking at him and distinctly thinking, that's what I want. I just want to feel that passion for anything in the same way that he feels for his piano, for this instrument. And, and I want to feel alive the way that he must um, when he connects to this thing. And uh, this name literally popped in my head, uh, Pencils of Promise, because uh, I'd always passed out these pencils and promise is both an oath and a commitment and, and you know, latent potential, like this person has promise. And it was just this perfect name. And I, I, it kind of hit me in that moment. Oh, gosh, I can start something mm. uh, with the externship and I can go build a school and I can leave a tangible footprint for good. And um, I went home, wrote like a, <laughs> everything that I could on paper, you know, like an original uh, mission statement, a charter, manifesto, all these stupid fundraising ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, all the people I would contact wherever I'd travel that I thought I could try to build the school, the very first one, and ultimately um, was really committed to building the first school and dedicating it to, uh, in particular, my, my grandmother who was turning 80 and is a Holocaust survivor um, and had just been through so much so that I could be in my position. I thought, let me live in service of, of her, in particular, honoring her, carrying forward her legacy, and then uh, ultimately um, educating children in poverty. Um, who don't have access to, to high quality education. So that was the idea, the impetus. And I went to the bank uh, a couple weeks later, uh, said what I have to do to open up a bank account. And the lady said at least $25. I was turning 25. So I said, that's a good, you know, karmic sign. <laughs> and put 25 bucks in a bank account. And Pencils of Promise was off and running, trying to build one school. And that was um, late 2008. Amazing. And in, in your book, you said when you were working the job that you scribbled in your spiritual or your spiral notebook. I guess it could be a spiritual notebook too. Yeah, actually, <laughs> I think that's applicable. <laughs> you said, I wish I was more interested in this work, but it's just not for me. Find your passion and you'll find your strength. Mm-hmm. I think that was pretty interesting. I don't know if you wrote that around the time you saw this piano player. Um, it was just before. Yeah. So it sounds like you had a lot of signs leading you towards creating something, but you just weren't sure, I guess how it was all going to play out. You didn't know when you open yeah. up a $25 bank account that you're going to have 200 schools now within, within five years. And uh, yeah, it's pretty amazing what you've created now. What, um, so, so how'd the process begin with uh, after this bank account opened? What was the next step? What was your biggest challenge? What was your biggest fear? And really getting a school up and running and then growing it. You know, after you did yeah. it once, how are you going to do it again? And how do you make it better and build it into yeah. this huge organization that you have now? Yeah, I mean, the truth is, I, I, when I very, the, at the very start, I, I didn't have any ambition to create a large organization. It, this was really a personal project. And, mm. you know, I, I find a lot of great entrepreneurs, you know, that is their initial drive is, is they find a, a personal issue that they feel like if they address it, it'll actually improve their own life. You know, you, you look time and time again, you know, person doesn't have a place to stay. And so they go out and they create Airbnb. Guy wishes that his buddies had access to like black cars on command to roll around like one event. So Uber gets started. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, another person uh, doesn't have like a, a healthy sports, you know, conscious uh, like nutritional drink. So they create one and then it goes on to actually address a problem for a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. And so that's really how I started. It was a an, you know very personal issue. I wanted to build a school. I wanted to dedicate it to my grandma. I wanted to change one community. And that, that was it for me. I mean, I really thought I was going to build one school during my externship and I was going to come back and work in private equity and make a ton of money and use that money to help fund one school a year. Right. That would be like this little thing that I would run. And, you know, like anything else, I just stayed up on like Googling and emailing anybody that I could, you know, just saying, this is my name. I'm trying to build a school, et cetera. And, you know, I, I find, and this is uh, one of the big uh, pieces of the book, uh, is that if you speak the language of the person that you seek to become, uh, that will really, really move you in the direction that you want to be. Mm, um, talk about it, that for a second. Sure. What yeah. Do you, what so, do you mean by that? Yeah. I mean, I find a lot of people, they speak in the, the, either the past or the present. So when you say, hey, you know, default conversation, what's your name? What do you do? Where do you live? Et cetera. They're, they're either describing what they've done previously, you know, their accomplishments, where they went to college, who they know or their present situation, this is where I live, this is where I'm working. Uh, And that's because you're comfortable in that conversation, you're familiar with it. Mm. But for anyone to create anything of of real large significance and meaning and merit, um, you have to be willing, one, to be extremely uncomfortable. 
uh, you have to live in a world in which risk is a part of your daily activity. And the way in which that starts to happen is when you speak in future tense. And so what, for my own example, you know, I got really bored uh, of meeting people at a bar and them saying, what do you do? And my answer being, well, I'm a 23-year-old management consultant. Uh, that's a really boring conversation after about the fifth time. Mm-hmm. And uh, the truth is, I, I didn't want to be a management consultant. I wanted to be somebody who built schools internationally for children in rural communities. That's who I hoped to become. And so I literally just started speaking the language of that person. Uh, not my present self, but the future self that I aspired to one day become. And so instead of, you know, if somebody said, hey, you know, what do you do if I met him at a bar? I'd say, well, right now I work in consulting, but one day I'm going to go start an organization that builds schools for children uh, in the developing world. And immediately the questions uh, that they would ask almost forced me to figure out the answers mm-hmm. and then live my way into them. And so, and so they would say, oh, well, you know, how are you going to um, build schools? Where are you going to build schools? And in the process of verbalizing those answers, it, it really moved me in the direction of making them into a reality. Mm. And oftentimes they would say, well, I, I know this guy or this girl. You should really talk to them. And then I'd say, sure. And, and it, all of a sudden these opportunities would become unearthed. And so, you know, what started with uh, an idea, and I really believe uh, wholeheartedly that, that ideas – you know, a lot of people say, like, uh, your ideas matter. I believe they have matter. Like, they're actually physical. There's weight to an idea. That when you put an idea, you know, when you speak a language about something, you put it into the world, it, it actually has a, a physical existence that starts to move people and, um, and uh, you know, has a ripple effect across uh, lives and eventually, like, the whole universe. And so what I found was that it, as long as I was speaking about the language of the, speaking the language of the person that I wanted to become, Um, my life would move in that direction. And so what started with a conversation about building one school, once the first school got built, and there's a lot of detail into how that happened, but the the truth was just putting myself in situations uh, where there was uncertainty. And uh, I I love uncertain situations. Anyone who knows me, I do a lot of speaking now, and I've never written out a speech. I mean, I get up there and I know the framework that I want to talk about, but... Uh, it's way more authentic and it's way more fun for me. And the insights that come out of kind of delivering something off the cuff or figuring it out in the moment, they're, they're way more just, they're driven by a lot more truth than something that is pre-prepared. And so I would, you know, fly out to Laos, knowing a couple people, get on a motorbike in my backpack and, you know, just start to chat with people on the ground and figure out and build relationships. And so by the time the first school got built, I, you know, I was coming back to my job at, at Bain from the sabbatical, but what had happened was all of these young professionals in New York that came to our early events, which were, you know, 20 to $50 kind of open bar parties to help raise money for this first school, they said, I- I've been looking for something like this. You know, all the principles that you're describing, building this organization on, this is what I've been searching for. And so I would sit with them and ask them, well, what do you do? So I understood their skill set, but much more importantly, I'd say, what do you love? Mm-hmm. You know, w- what gets you excited? What do you wish you could work on? Because when you have a volunteer team, you know, obviously there's no monetary incentive. You need to give people uh, an experiential incentive. And that's usually um, learning and growth and fulfillment. Mm. So, you know, if you were a junior account manager at uh, a a top marketing agency and you're pretty much shuffling paper all day, well, I would say, well, if you love marketing, how about you help build our brand? How about Mm. you actually create our language? And so you had all these kind of 24 to 26-year-olds or younger who were doing very junior responsibilities at top-notch companies like, you know, Goldman Sachs or uh, myself at Bain, people from Deloitte and and McKinsey and, um, you know, Columbia Law School, Harvard Business School. Suddenly you had the opportunity to be a senior leader (laughs) at a little volunteer force startup. And so, you know, I drew from the best talent and gave total ownership to people. I said, you know, never use the the term you um, or I, it's always we. You know, this is not your organization, it's our organization. And I, I still really hammer that in with anybody, including you, Lewis. I mean, right. if I ever hear you say, like, yeah, I've probably said it to you, you know? <laughs> like, if, if it's like, oh, you guys are up to this, it's, it's no. Like, you, you, you know, you've built multiple schools now. You are a very much a part of Pencils of Promise. And so I, I think it should be we. You have ownership in this as well. And so um, things just started to scale from there. And eventually I, I chose to um, leave Bain and start working, you know, out of my apartment. And had a couple 
you know, powerful signs that I saw <laughs> around me uh, that almost seemed like direct messages saying, this is what you're meant to go do. And mm -hmm. I couldn't turn away from those things. And so I left uh, early 2010 to try and build, you know, a, a, a real significant organization um, in the space. Now, let's say for those listening, maybe, uh, you know, I've got a lot of different uh, wide range of listeners from successful entrepreneurs to people who listen to the show because they want to be inspired by each guest and uh, they want to learn something new. Now, let's just say there's uh, someone, someone listening mm -hmm. who isn't satisfied with where they're at, whether it's career, relationship, whatever it may be. They're just kind of like, uh, this doesn't feel like my calling. Yeah. What are some steps? And you kind of like, you talked a little bit about it, but what are some steps that they can take right now? Or what's some things that they can reflect on or write about to start discovering what they should be doing and, um, and how to do it. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the book is written in a way I, I've read a lot of, you know, personal stories of, um, entrepreneurs that I, I really admired. And, you know, what I found was a lot of the books, they told incredible stories that were very inspiring, but they didn't really show you how you could live your own mm. way into a similar path. And so when I wrote the book, I purposely wrote it in 30 very short chapters, each of which, um, has a core story, but is titled with a mantra. And those 30 mantras are, all things that I've had written on my walls at various points in time or in my journal. And they've really served as kind of guideposts for me. And so anyone that reads this book, you know, these, these 30 mantras collectively, it's like the blueprint that um, the roadmap that you would follow to get kind of unstuck from whatever position that you're in to discover a sense of purpose and then turn that into a full-time movement organization or, or business. And the first one um, is that you have to get out of your comfort zone. Uh, for me, that meant you know quitting the basketball team at Brown, breaking up with my girlfriend, going on semester at sea, and not telling a single friend that I was going, <laughs> so that I was forced to go alone. Wow! And, and and truthfully, I mean, I'd been living a very comfortable, happy life, but um, you know, you you don't really challenge yourself if you're content and if you're satisfied, um, and that's a difficult kind of paradox for a lot of people, I think, to really grasp. It's like you know, happiness and meaning are two very, very different things. They're not, you know, the same. Just because you're happy doesn't mean that you've discovered meaning. And, you know, there's some very unhappy people who live very meaningful lives. Mm. And so you have to, one, kind of make a choice. And, and I chose meaning. You know, I, I saw um, happiness as a byproduct of uh, finding meaning. Um, but I didn't say meaning as a byproduct of, of finding happiness. Mm. And so... Um, in order for me to, you know, choose to find meaning and, you know, you even ask the question, like, how does, you know, someone find their calling, you know, in, in itself, a calling almost, you know, refers to someone who has discovered their sense of purpose and meaning. So that, that first thing is you just, you have to leave the constraints of your comfort zone. Um, and that might mean, you know, taking a month long trip somewhere. It could mean doing a weekend away by yourself in the woods. It could mean breaking up with your boyfriend or girlfriend because your relationship is stagnant and it's not pushing you anymore. Uh, it could mean leaving your job, and in my case, it meant um, leaving my kind of home school community, my team, my my you know my comforts, and traveling into the developing world. And so that's the first thing, because then you put yourself in an environment um, to discover not what you are, but who you are. The second one is uh, ultimately that you have to acknowledge that you have a purpose, and I think it's something that not everyone fully grasps. But you, I you didn't really acknowledge that until semester at sea, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I lived the, a life like anybody else does, you know, just trying to kind of get through the next week. I had goals for myself. You know, I wanted to get into a good college. I wanted to play a division one sport. I wanted to get a good job. I wanted to have a nice house and a family one day. But those are kind of tent posts that, you know, you can trend towards. But that, that's very different from discovering your purpose. And so the, the first step in discovering a purpose is to acknowledge that it exists uh, and that it's out there. So I always advise people, one, choose to get out of your comfort zone. In, in the act of leaving your comfort zone, understand that you have a distinct purpose. You exist for a reason, uh, that it's not a random act. And once you know that you have a purpose, when you fully absorb that, you know, the, the next one that I talk a lot about is uh, you'll put yourself in environments where you'll have these lightning moments. And they're rare. And you can't force them, but it's almost like falling in love. You know, you, you like have to be in the right place to meet the right person. Um, and my, my lightning moment was um, that night at the symphony when, uh, when that guy played the piano. And it hit me like, oh, I want to be that passionate. And suddenly 
you know, all these little ideas, these little experiences that I had had compounded into one big idea, this one like almost revelation personally. And so I call those lightning moments. Mm. And when you have that lightning moment, they scare people because it's like, oh man, if I pursue this, my life, my whole life is going to change. Right. Uh, what if I fail or whatever? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I know your story really well. Um, and you know, you had it all, you know, pro athlete, all these great things. And then when that injury, you know, led you to being on a, a couch, you know, I'm sure that as you were surfing LinkedIn, suddenly you had this late, you know, lightning moment that was like, oh man, I, I can, I can win at this right. and I can help a lot of people in the process, right. but it was going to force you to kind of drop your identity as a pro athlete and, mm-hmm. you know, move into a different version of yourself. And, you know, a lot of people are scared of that, but I, I, you know, I think both you and I are living examples of this. When you embrace that lightning moment, good things will happen. Even if it doesn't end up being the massive success that you expected, something extraordinary will come of it. Mm. And then, um, you know, the, the last thing that I would say is that you should never take no from someone who can't say yes. Uh, and this was a lesson that I learned. It's it's one of the chapters about how we got our website built. And, you know, at the time we had like a really small organization, you know, maybe we had raised collectively like $100,000 or something. You know, we had, we were in an office that was in the back of uh, a women's garment manufacturing company. <laughs> so no joke, our um, shared conference room where I would have meetings with people was wall to wall lined with granny panties, like huge women's oh my gosh. underwear. Um, that's, that's how like desperate and small (laughs) startup we were. And we had no paid staff besides I was taking like a ridiculously small salary and everybody else was a volunteer at all these high school interns. And, you know, we needed a big break. And I knew that having a world-class website would give us this image that we were a bigger organization that we were, and that we would kind of fill out, you know, the shoes of our website into becoming a bigger organization. And, a uh, guy that I'd gone to high school with was working at a great company, a uh, digital agency, and he offered to help out kind of quarterbacking freelancers with the little money that we could spend on our website. But he kind of opened the door to me and said, you know, something our CEO is a really philanthropic guy. Maybe our agency could take it on, but we don't do any websites for less than six figures, but maybe he'd be interested in us helping. <laughs> and oh, that little kind of crack in the door got me obsessed with the idea that that company, AgencyNet, which did, you know, like Bacardi's website and, you know, major car company websites was going to do our little nonprofits website. <laughs> and, um, you know, I just, I, I got this one phrase in my head, that mantra, I just couldn't let it go. Never take no from someone who can't say yes. And I knew that my friend Alex could not say yes to me because he wasn't running the company. He couldn't say, sure, we'll put, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars of free resources into your work. But I knew that the CEO could say yes. And so I was relentless about getting in front of him. You know, I eventually, you know, after the guy blew me off for like a month or two, uh, I told him I'd fly anywhere in the world. If he would just give me 30 minutes, I'd get on a flight and meet him anywhere. And mm-hmm. at that point, the CEO took a call with me. And within four days, they had committed uh, 150 grand of pro bono resources to build out our website. And that, that guy ended up not only building a website, but joining our board of directors and becoming a huge personal mentor for me pers- uh, you know, personally. Amazing. And so that, that's the last one. If I would you know, advise somebody, it's like you have to figure out who the decision maker is and just be relentless about making sure that if somebody's going to say no to you with whatever it is that's going to move the lever for you to accomplish your dream, at least it's somebody who had the option to say yes. Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of people that get mired in you know, back and forth with somebody who's just not in a position because they're too junior or they're not in the right position or industry. What, you know, what I like to tell people is fall in love with fear. And mm. uh, when you feel that fear, really f- start to fall in love with it and throw yourself into it wholeheartedly yeah. because that's what's going to ultimately get you out of your comfort zone, which you talked about in the beginning, and then get you what you want. So mm. whenever you feel a fear, that's when you should jump and just go for yeah. it. Go for it. Obviously, there's certain types of fear that you want to avoid, like you know, running into a bear or something like that. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but the fear of like failure, rejection, and those types of fear is when you should really go after it. Yeah, I, there's a chapter called um, "Vulnerability is Vital." That was what I was going to talk to you about next. Yeah, um, yeah. let's talk about that because sure. you, you, you know, in this chapter, you start talking about. Really, you didn't want to ask anyone for money. You know, mm-hmm. you're, you're building this nonprofit or this charity or this for purpose, and uh, it's all about fundraising. But you were like your pride and your yep. ego. Mm-hmm. You didn't want to ask anyone. So talk about that. 
Yeah, I mean, it was three and a half years into the organization. You know, at that point, we're raising you know seven figures a year, so we're a multi-million dollar operation. And I had yet to ask a single person outright for a direct donation. Mm. You know, not one person. You know, the biggest ask I'd made was of this CEO of the of the digital agency to do our website, but I never asked anyone like, "Hey, can you give us ten thousand dollars?" And the key when you really study the science of fundraising is to ask for a specific number, and you know, at least you anchor it and let the person come in at that number or above or below. And, you know, it's, it's uh, something that a lot of people, myself included, are extremely uncomfortable with, um, bringing money into that social dynamic. And the truth is, you know, I had a lot of incredible friends who were very successful entrepreneurs or, you know, successful career-wise in one way or another, and certainly had huge capacity and loved, you know, the organization, you know, told me all the time how proud they were to be associated with Pencil of Promise. And they'd never really given us anything more than like 30 or 40 bucks, maybe. And so I, I knew that I was leaving so much money out on the table. And then at the same time, we had developed enough of a staff that I was now responsible for, you know, ensuring the well-being of, of my staff and their families. And, um, you know, when you have a board of directors uh, at a high-growth nonprofit, they tend to be very impressive people who have kind of taken a leap of faith in you as, as the kind of leader or entrepreneur. And the one thing you don't want to show is weakness. You know, you don't want to kind of say, hey, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm trying to figure it out. Or I actually suck at this one thing that's really <laughs> important, which was the case for me. And, you know, I, I made a conscious decision that in the best interest of the organization, I, I really needed to express my absolute um, vulnerability, that I needed to be honest with the fact that I was failing at one of the most important responsibilities of a CEO of an organization um, in the charitable space. And so I sat with our board and I said, look, I'm, I'm really bad at this fundraising part. I'm not comfortable. I'm scared of asking people for money and uh, I need help. And we found um, a, a really, really fantastic course that uh, not-for-profit or kind of, as I call, for-purpose organization, um, their leaders can go through to really teach them um, how to fundraise effectively. And a lot of it is the psychological component. And what I realized was um, a couple things, one of which was that part of my fear of asking people was that I put myself at the center of the equation and that I felt like I was asking for, for me, for money. Um, and the reality was I actually wasn't asking for myself. I was asking for the kids that we build schools for. Um, and when I removed myself from the center of the equation, I actually thought about the beneficiaries of our work who really the money goes towards, um, it completely changed my approach. And instead of feeling a weight, um, uh, a responsibility, I actually felt honored. Like, you know, I'm the one person who's met these kids that can go out into the world and evangelize on behalf of their story and what an honor for me to be able to ask for, you know, great people to support other, you know, great children. Mm. And so that was a big shift for me. Um, and then the, the other one was just, you know, the experience. I had to kind of jump in the deep end and start asking people. And, you know, uh, a, one a guy who's on our board recently said to me uh, about something else that I was really, you know, weak at and I wanted to learn to get better at. He was like, Adam, if you want to learn... Um, how to deliver like a great crossover move in basketball. Do you watch the videos on YouTube or do you go out and play at the Duke basketball camp? And the truth is you play at the Duke basketball camp. Mm. Uh, you don't just watch a video of it. And I needed to put that into practice. I needed to face my biggest fears. I needed to be <laughs> open about where I was vulnerable. And, you know, as you said, like lean into those fears. Um, and only through, you know, the first time hearing a, a soft yes, the second time hearing no, then hearing yes and no. And, you know, at this point, every day, you know, I, I hear a yes or a no, but it's become far less of a fear and much more of not only, a, you know, somewhat of a strength, but something that I don't worry about doing as much anymore. I actually feel honored to do it now. Mm, yeah, because it's not it's not about you. It's about the cause and, and the kids. and Right. I mean, if someone says no to me, it, it doesn't change my life, but it changes the lives of the children that were, you know, potentially could have built a school in. And when I remember that, I don't feel one you know, as much um, that I'm at the center of this equation. And it's a really hard thing because, you know, especially for entrepreneurs, you, in a lot of ways, you feel like your company is an extension of you personally. Mm. But um, if you're working in anything kind of cause-based, and I think, you know, whether you're nonprofit or for-profit, there's a way for you to be a for-profit, for-purpose organization that you're serving you know, I think your work in particular, Lewis, you know, you help a tremendous amount of people, but you're not registered as a 501c3 nonprofit organization. But if you think about, all right, if you wanted to expand your business, 
And if you were looking to raise money around that, you know, if, if you think about, all right, this isn't just about expanding my business, it's enabling me to help more people find, you know, their passion and build their ideas into great businesses, you're actually serving a lot of good um, for a lot of people. Mm. And when you go into that fundraising mode, which, you know, I, as I said, you know, I'm you know, kind of patient zero here. I'm guilty person number one of being scared of. When you take yourself out of the center of the equation, you think about the beneficiaries uh, of that work, it becomes a lot easier. Yeah. And I think when you're, you know, an entrepreneur or, or raising money or selling your product or your service or anything, if you take that into into consideration when you're asking for the sale or for the investment, that if you have an actual vision or a message or a purpose for what mm -hmm. it is you're selling, the technology, whatever it may be, and it's greater than yourself, then it kind of takes the pressure off you for for asking for, for mm -hmm. money because mm -hmm. it's in a bigger bigger purpose, bigger vision. So Yeah, I, I mean my 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 recent obsession is this idea um, of moving, helping people move from success to significance. Mm. And I think a lot of people first crave success, but when they reach success, then they transition and they seek significance. And this is just what I've seen from you know, everything uh, from high, you know, a lot of our highest net worth donors. Um, the reason that they participate in an organization like Pencils of Promise is because they, they want to transition success into significance. Uh, and that doesn't happen unless you face your fears. Mm, gosh, some good nuggets, man. There's there's 30 mantras, and mm -hmm. we've gone over like five or ten of these. But uh, each one, again, in the book, when you guys pick it up, it's uh, it's powerful, powerful lessons, great stories, and great uh, steps on how to really take it and own it for yourself. So everyone, make sure to go out and get The Promise of a Pencil how an ordinary person can create extraordinary change by Adam Braun. And uh, this will be released, I think the week that it comes out. Mm. Um, so make sure you go check it out on Amazon. And I believe it's going to be in Barnes and Noble and everywhere else online that you can yep. get it. Best place to find you is mm -hmm. adambraun.com. Is that correct? Yep. Yeah. And pencilsofpromise.org is the best place to find all about um, the organization and more about Adam's story and, and what what they're up to. Again, 200 schools in less than five years is pretty inspiring in my mind when it just came from an idea that Adam had uh, just over five years ago. So pretty cool what one person can create with their ideas and transforming the world and the lives of a lot of young kids. And for me, this organization is a, uh, it holds a, a big place in my heart because Growing up, uh, I was really challenged learning in school. And when I went to a private boarding school in eighth grade, they went to put me through all these different tests of uh, seeing where I where I where I stood in the class. And uh, they realized that I couldn't read. I had the reading level of about a, a second grader, and it was a challenge for me to always read. And specifically in public during class, when when teachers would call out me. I would, uh, I would be terrified and I would be sweating and I would read and I couldn't read the simplest of words. And so that experience of, you know, not being, you know, getting made fun of a lot, reading and, and uh, really s struggling in the school for me was a, was a challenge. And it's one of the main reasons why I really believe in what Adam's up to is giving kids who don't have opportunities uh, a better opportunity to really play on, uh, on a level playing field in education. So I, I acknowledge you for what you've created, for the, the huge heart that you have, for your love and your passion for this vision. And uh, I'm extremely excited to continue supporting this. There's actually going to be, if you guys go to the show notes over at lewishouse.com, you'll see in the notes uh, somewhere on the page that uh, I'm, I'm fundraising for my next school, which is for my birthday, March 16th. So Feel free to uh, leave a donation there if you are uh, inspired by this. Also, pick up the book. Again, The Promise of a Pencil. And uh, to wrap up with the final question, my man, mm. what is your definition of greatness? Mm. Such a good question. <laughs> um, my definition of greatness would be living a life full of purpose, love, and dignity. I love it. Thanks, my man. And, uh, hey, thank you. Thank you. Truly. <laughs> I truly. It's I, been an honor and an inspiration. Yeah, man. I appreciate it. And um, make sure to uh, chat with uh, Adam. You're on Twitter. You're at 
Adam Braun or it's Adam yeah, Braun? Yeah, no, just uh, Adam Braun on Twitter. Okay. At Adam Braun on Twitter. Make sure to uh, share this out with your friends and let Adam know if you have any questions. He'll, he'll chat back with you probably on Twitter there. For and, sure. Uh, thanks again, man. And I appreciate you. Uh, appreciate you as well. Thanks so much, Liz. And there you have it, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode again. Adam is such an amazing human being, and what a great storyteller. Make sure to go pick up the book, The Promise of a Pencil, How an Ordinary Person Can Create Extraordinary Change by Adam Braun. And if you go over to the show notes over at lewishouse.com forward slash promise, you will get all the show notes, the links to find the book, and the the websites to find uh, my campaign that I'm building with Pencil Promise if you'd like to donate I'm building my third school right now, uh, so you can go ahead and make a, a donation there if you'd like, and um, all the other goodies that you need to find out about Adam. Again, it's an incredible organization, incredible story. I urge you to pick up the book. Really cool, extremely powerful and inspiring, and uh, definitely well worth it. So again, go ahead over to lewishouse.com forward slash promise. I hope this episode inspires you guys to go out there and do something extraordinary. It doesn't matter where you've come, where you're headed, what's happened to you, with the success you've had, the failures you've had. Nelson Mandela said it best when he said, there is no passion to be found playing small in settling for a life that is less than the one you are capable of living. So I urge you to go out there and create the life you're capable of living. Go out there and do something great. seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium bang and a Lufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. At Metro, get an iPhone 12 with 5G and a dual camera system for $99.99. Take amazing pictures and share them instantly. And don't put up with life's yada yada. Yada yada. Like photo bombers. Zoom, crop out, yada yada. And bye. You don't take yada yada in life. Don't take yada yada from your wireless provider. Get iPhone 12 with 5G with no activation fees and not a yada yada. Only at Metro by T Mobile. Switch Metro, bring your ID. This offer isn't available for customers currently at T Mobile or that have been with Metro in the past 180 days.